Titus chapter 2. As we've been uh, working our way through the book of Titus, last week we saw the moral reputation of the people of Crete. Not just from Paul and his assessment, but actually him quoting and agreeing from a Cretan himself. Someone who, who has grown up and lived in Cretan. And the description was not a favorable one. Even the man from Crete himself acknowledged that the culture of Crete was wicked and debased. In fact, Crete was known for the wickedness of its people. And we saw that that was reflected also in the life of the false teachers who had come to the church in Crete. Those that would claim the name of Christ and yet teach a doctrine and a gospel contrary to the one true faith. And today, as we look at chapter 2, we see that Paul is concerned now that the Christians in Crete not follow the example of the false teachers and their wickedness and their ungodliness and their inability to live counter the culture around them, but instead he wants Titus to teach the Christians in Crete to live specifically different from what is going on around them. He wants to know specifically how to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have been told of his saving work through his life, death, and resurrection. They have believed it, and now they need to be instructed on what it means to live having believed in Jesus Christ. Simply put, they need to be told how to live not like a citizen of Crete, but as a citizen of heaven. And frankly, the the kind of challenge that Titus was tasked with back then is, is very similar to the challenge that we face today. The culture is constantly seeking to squeeze us into its mold of the three kind of enemies of the Christian the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're dealing with the world here. It is the entirety of the cosmos in rebellion against God. Therefore, it's not just some sinful act. It is the entire mindset of sinfulness and wicked rebellion that threatens us in how we are to live, not only towards God, but towards one another. Will we be pressed into and shaped into the mold, conformed to its image, as Paul says in Romans 12? Or will we be transformed? By the renewal of our mind as the gospel has its penetrating work, not just in saving our souls, but in cleansing it as well. The gospel calls for more than cultural imitation. It calls for us to imitate Christ himself in our behavior. The apostle is keen that these Christians in Crete be taught what their life in Christ is supposed to look like. And so he writes to Titus and says, tell them, live this way. If you are a Christian, this is how you are supposed to live. And in fact, he, he specifically zeroes in on the different kinds of people that would be, make up the church and the specific temptations that they face. This is what we want to see this morning as we read in Titus chapter 2. We'll begin at verse 1 and I invite you to follow along as I read. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, 
having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. As Paul walks through the lives of these various kinds of people, he identifies specific ways that they are tempted to sin and how the gospel calls them to resist conformity to the world. He is explaining the kind of new life that they should have and be living out as God's people. And through the course of these verses, I think Paul lays out five broad marks of what gospel-driven living looks like. That is, five marks that should be evident in the lives of Christians that would separate them out from the world. Five marks that should be evident in our lives today. So let's look at these. First, we see that countercultural Christians should exhibit consistency. They should exhibit consistency. Again, in the previous section, Paul has described the false teachers who were in Crete. He has presented a picture of their corrupted doctrine and their corrupted living. They were not only advocating belief that didn't stand up in the scriptures, they were also living lives that stood contrary to the gospel. And in light of these things, Paul tells Titus, don't be like that. That's them, but for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That is to say, Titus is not only to teach the truth, sound doctrine, but he is to teach the truth that accords with it. That is, how one is to live their life in a way that reflects what they have believed. There is a Christian lifestyle that necessarily flows out of Christian faith. If you have truly understood and embraced what Christianity is about, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, then your life is going to look differently than it did before you came to saving faith. Notice, first of all, this assumes there is something, there is even such a thing as sound doctrine. That is to say, there is such a thing as right, fundamental, consistent, for all people, all times, everywhere, Christian truth. There is such a thing as a Christian theology. And many would dispute that today. Many would say that in the early church there were competing theologies of Christianity. There were competing ideas about what, uh, who Christ was and what he taught and what he did. And essentially it was through church the the politics of church councils, that a decision was made to say this is what Christianity was all about. And so you have people like Bart Ehrman writing books and James Cameron filming documentaries seeking to to devalue and undermine the, the, the truthfulness and the reliability of the New Testament scriptures and therefore by extension the unwarranted beliefs of the church. In other words, if we, cannot, if we cannot rely on the accuracy of the New Testament documents or how they came to us, then we need not worry about anything specific in Christianity. We get to choose our own religion, as it were. We get to choose our own version of Christ. Now, we don't have time to address all of those issues. Several people have written books and given lectures that show uh, devastatingly that those things are foolish attempts at best, completely dishonest work of historians at worst. For history itself shows and is self-evident that the reality is this. The church never gave the books of the Bible their status as Scripture. God gave their status as Scripture, and the church simply recognized that status. 
Specifically, they recognized fakes and forgeries that came later, and therefore through the councils drew lines around what was already acknowledged as the scriptures and said, this is all that we have, this is all that we need, these others do not stand up to the test. They do not match the criteria of scripture that we have recognized in these reliable books. Furthermore, the biblical documents we have display a unified theology. Now, that may seem, if you've grown up Christian or familiar with you, that seems like, sure, that would make sense. But think about how amazing that is. Uh, Just take the New Testament for a minute. You have nine different authors writing 27 different books, and none of it contradicts itself. One guy never says anything that directly contradicts anything that another guy says. Certainly some books add a, a certain emphasis. But all of it coheres into a central, unified doctrine of God, of his saving work in Christ, and how his people are to live. Humanity can't produce something like that by itself, but God can. And this is where the skeptics fall short, trying to account for Christianity apart from anything supernatural. You just can't do it. In truth, there is such a thing as sound doctrine, a single unified theology of God, Christ, creation, and everything, because God himself has given it to us through his servants that we have as his word. It's this pattern of sound words, of sound doctrine that was meant to be passed on from generation to generation of Christians. So therefore, we aren't meant to be novel or created in our beliefs. Instead, we are meant to remember and believe the doctrine that was taught to us from faithful Christians who had it taught to them by faithful Christians, all again receiving it from God and his word. That's the standard. So that if error does creep in, we are constantly going back to the word, back to the word, back to the word to make sure that it is not our own ideas that we're calling Christianity, but God's ideas, God's truth that he has given to us. Titus has received this sound doctrine from Paul, and now Paul is saying, teach it. Teach to those in Crete what I taught to you. But more than that, teach them what it means practically for their life. Teach them what it means to have a life that is centered in Christ, that is grounded in Him and rooted in Him and changed by His redeeming work. Christ has come not only to save us from sins, but to lead us into godly living in the present evil age. Therefore, devote yourself, Titus to showing what that looks like, to teaching God's people how to live lives consistent with what they believe. Not lives that would contradict the gospel of Christ. In these verses, Paul shows that while there is a basic, fundamental way for God's people to live, that works itself out differently for different people. Not that one group has to live this way, another group has to live the other way. No, but rather at different stages of life, in different roles and responsibilities that you have, there are going to be greater or lesser temptations to certain sins. So the sins that I am tempted to at my age and at my station of life are going to be far different from my father and my grandfather and from my kids. Likewise, Paul wants to help us understand what these things are. For example, one pastor in his 70s wrote in his diary, Oh God, save me from the sins of old men. And in fact, that is the next group that Paul addresses, the first group, older believers. And from here, what we see is that one of the marks of true Christianity is seen in maturity. Maturity. This is the second thing that we see. 
How does living a life in light of the gospel work itself out for those who are older in the faith? Paul tells us in verse 2, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now the first part of this list speaks to a certain kind of gravity that should be evident in their life. I don't mean gravity as in like Sir Isaac Newton. I mean like in, in the word gravitas. That there, there is a weight to their life. There's a sobriety to their thinking, Paul says, which is seen in the dignified way in which they carry themselves. It shows that they have learned to be self-controlled in what they do and what they think and what they say. They don't live on whimsy. That doesn't mean the person has to be a stuffed shirt and never has any fun. There is clearly a certain a certain gravity to the way my grandfather lives, but that never stopped him from being out in the backyard with me pitching ball or making jokes and having fun. Rather, what we are saying is that there is a weight to their life that is evident from the fact they have walked long with God. It reminds me of uh, one of the stories from our founding when in the course of determining uh, policy and decision-making and so many things from our founders, uh, there was, as you can imagine, a diverse opinion on things that was held quite strongly, even as it were today. And sometimes the, the debate would, would start to get rough and, and angry, and people would begin standing up and shouting and pointing fingers. And it was said that, that George Washington need only rise from his seated position and look at those that were there, not speaking a word. And the debate would quiet down. And become more dignified. That's the way. That's the kind of gravity. The kind of dignity that Paul is getting at for these older Christians. The second part of the list shows that they are supposed to display a maturity of character. To match the maturity of their age. It says that, that they are to, um, that they're to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. This, I, this word sound speaks to something that is healthy or wholesome. It's often used of people who were healed in Acts and in the Gospels. Paul means, I believe, that their character as Christian men should be evident in the maturity of the basics of the Christian virtues of faith, trust in God, in love, affectionate service to God and to care for others, and steadfastness, their persevering hope in the return of Christ and the salvation that they will bring. So I think if we were to summarize what Titus is to teach the older men, it would be this. Stay the course. Stay the course. The temptation for older men is to feel as if they've put their time in. To feel as if they've been passed by, by all of these young people that, that are coming up and are active and involved. And therefore, they're not important to the church anymore. The temptation for older men is to be, frankly, lazy about their sin and to unplug from active life in the church. And Paul is saying, tell Titus to remind them, don't do that. Don't do that. Stay steady. Stay steady. Remember, there is still work for you to do in the church. God is not done with you yet. It's your very experience of growing in his grace, your maturity and your gravity that are meant to set an example and to provide a stabilizing influence for the life of the church. Paul moves on to say that the older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. What is the temptation for older women? To feel empty after they've raised their children and seen them off. They feel if their, if their identity has been too closely wrapped up in the, in the maturing and the nurturing of those in their household, when the household is empty, what do they have left to do? Their identity is, some, is, is suddenly 
has a massive gap in it. And Paul says this can lead to being overly involved. This is particularly the situation in Crete, but I think there's application for today as well. There can be an over, an, 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 uh, a heightened sense of involvement in the lives of others that goes past concern into being a busybody. It descends into gossip, which leads to slander, saying untrue things about people who tra- that trash their character. Understand, gossip is saying what could be true things about people that trash their character, which is no good either. But slander goes farther. You know it's wrong. Furthermore, having been faithful before their children, Paul says, don't now slide into the easy sins of idle hands like drunkenness. He says, no, no, no. Like the men, your time isn't up. God is not done with you. There is work to be done. Keep being reverent in your behavior. Show your life is being lived before God even now in his watchful eye. And teach. He says, teach what is good. Specifically, teach the young women what it means to be a good and godly woman. Let the grace of God be evident in what you say and in how you live. Therefore, it is frankly a terrible mistake for this church or any church to keep, as it were, moving the older Christians to the back of the bus to make way for the young people. It is a mistake to forget that they're there all together or that they have something valuable to contribute. Instead, the leadership should be continuing to exhort them, stay steady, stay strong, Take the experience and the maturity that God has given you and use that to invest in the next generation. Just this past week, an older Christian man that um, I've known for about the last nine years passed away. He went to be uh, with his God. And um, as I was thinking back over, uh, over his life, uh, he was always very quick to, uh, to give encouragement, to offer counsel. We... Uh, uh, had some social interaction, but we served in a lot of uh, state and associate, associational level committees. But I think probably the most the most helpful the most helpful thing that I saw from him I didn't actually see, but I heard about from his daughter, and it was this that during uh, the the final day of his life, as family uh, knew he was coming sick, he was dying with a, a fast spreading cancer that came just a few months ago. That uh, that as family would come in, he, he would he would he would set one of them aside and send the others out, and he would offer a final benediction on their life, a final prayer to God before he saw God face to face. Tired from the treatments, he would he would fall asleep, and as he woke up, he would he would wake up with hymns on his lips, singing of the old old story of the amazing grace through Jesus the Nazarene, the one who loved us and died for us. And I thought that's how. That's how a Christian man should die. Faithful, steady till the end. Not bitter or scared, but joyful and confident in loving God. Continuing to care for his family, even if by prayer until his final breath. God's people, even in old age, especially in old age, are to teach the church what mature godliness looks like. Both by words and by the example of their life. Consistency and maturity are marks of God's people, but third, so is self-control. So is self-control. 
This actually runs across all of the groups, but it figures more prominently in the instructions for the younger people. Paul says in verse 4, Older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Earlier this year, we talked about our desire uh, as elders to see uh, every disciple being a disciple maker. And here, here we see, in case you were wondering, uh, this isn't something we just dreamed up. It's a New Testament pattern of Christian living. The older women are meant to disciple the younger women. They are meant to help move them toward maturity in Christ by sharing the fruit of their own life and experience. What are they to teach? Well, it begins with how to relate to others. The young women are first to be trained in how to love their husbands and children. Now, first of all, just think about what that means. Loving their husband and children is something they can actually be taught how to do. And it's something they can be improving in. They need to be taught what it means to love their family and what that will look like in everyday life. The best people to do that are older women who have a consistent track record in doing that, who have the experience. I can teach a young man how to love his wife. I can't teach a young lady how to love her husband. Not been there, not done that. Not, I've, been on the, I've been on the opposite side, the, the receiving end. Notice she's also to be trained in how to carry herself with others. Now again, as we, as we think about Passages like this, we have to be careful that we're not beginning, we're not beginning with an attempted at application for 21st century Christians without first understanding what the application of 1st century Christians was and where it was coming from. In other words, some of the issues that are often talked about in churches about the career woman and so many other things aren't really in Paul's mind here. The Bible addresses those things, but it comes at a, at a more at a more sideways slant rather than head on like we might think. So when Paul says that they should be trained to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and kind, he's not, he again is thinking about what is going on in his day. Unless the woman was a slave, as we will talk about in a few minutes, there would have been very few opportunities for, for them to work outside the home. Furthermore, we know from secular sources as well as 1 Timothy 5, there was a kind of body, uh, body subculture of Greco-Roman wives who would go from house to house talking about gossiping and salacious things along with other lazy wives who had nothing to do. The point here is not so much that women can never work outside the home, and we even see that in Proverbs 31, but that domestic responsibilities cannot be given up in favor of something else. In a culture of arranged marriages with little love sometimes felt, the gospel-centered wife displays a genuine love for her family, even, even submitting to the leadership of her husband as he seeks to be a godly shepherd of his wife and children. As he leads, protects, and cares for his family, Paul says that she is to be taught to willingly let him do that instead of trying to, to assert her own authority. What is the effect of this visibly different way of life, Paul says, teach them that living this way is important because if they don't, the word of God would be reviled. Think about that, ladies. To the degree that your life is not one of gospel-driven self-control and you proclaim Christ to those outside looking in, the word of God is rendered useless. It is seen to be something of little to no value that has no bearing on their life because it obviously has had no bearing on your life. Paul follows it up with a much shorter list. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. Now understand that this does not mean that the young men have no need of anything else. 
It doesn't mean that they don't need to be taught to be soundness in faith or reverent in behavior or kind or diligent with their family. They do need those things. But as a young man, what does he need more than anything else? Self-control. And if you're a man, you know that, don't you? I mean, we instinctively know that. As a young man, there is a greater tendency for allowing ourselves to be out of control with our tongues and our passions and our desires and our ambitions. Instead of disciplining ourselves, we almost delight in a lack of discipline. Paul knows this, and he's saying more than anything, be teaching the young men to strive for a self-controlled life. For a self-controlled life. It is not, it is not without reason that I heard a very famous Christian uh, man one time say that uh, when he finds these young guys in college and, and are, are graduating and, and whatnot, he says one of the first things I tell him is, find a good wife, get a mortgage, and start having kids because you will learn self-control. You will man up and you will mature. Otherwise, there is this tendency to just kind of float around there and do whatever we want. And, and Paul, even back in the first century, says, no, no, no. Young guys, learn self-control. Learn self-control. Learn that what you do with your time and your money and your body and your emotions, those things matter to God. This is one of the marks of God's people, self-control. Another mark is this, imitation. Imitation, this is the fourth thing that we see. Frankly, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't, word doesn't really match the other four. I'll just be honest with that, but I couldn't come up with a better one. If you do, tell me later, and I'll, I'll uh, put it in my notes, and the next time I preach this in 20 years, I'll, I'll know better. But imitation is the word that I came up with. Notice what, what Paul says when he returns to Titus and gives him further instructions in verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Notice title is meant to be a model, not rock, walking a runway, but setting an example for those in Crete. He is supposed to be a model in how he lives, a model of good works, but more than that, he is supposed to be a model of, in what he teaches as well. He says, in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. In these instructions, Titus is being told what the motive, the manner, and the message of his teaching should be. Integrity speaks to the why, the motive of why he is serving. Remember just before this, there were those false teachers in Crete who were, who were teaching for greedy gain. He says, don't be like that. Have integrity in your teaching and your ministry. Dignity, again, doesn't mean stuffy, but it means there is an appropriate, appropriate seriousness to his teaching. He, he's not giving the, the sports scores, the movie reviews. He is talking about something that concerns eternity. That's why when a preacher preaches, there better be tears in his eyes when he speaks about hell and a smile on his face when he speaks about heaven. This brings us to sound speech, which means that what he says will be reflective of true Christian teaching. There's not going to be anything unbiblical in what he teaches. Notice the, the twofold effect of this kind of ministry. First, living and serving this way means that his opponents have nothing evil to say about him. His critics will be silenced by the evident truthfulness of his teaching and the evident godliness of his life. But more importantly, notice, he will be an example to follow. Titus is to be the model, not just for the elders he will establish in Crete, but for a model for the entire church. We often joke with our kids and say, and other people sometimes, and say, do what I say and not what I do. You ever heard that before? That, that, is, that is death, biblically speaking. It goes back to the very first thing of consistency. 
as Christians, we are meant to be a model for everyone that comes behind us. We are to live a life after, in a certain way that, that afterwards it will be a pattern that can be imitated. What we believe, how we live, are meant to be examples for those that follow. This is a, a crucial and important theme for Paul especially, not just the entire New Testament. We see that this very command or words about it show up eight times across six of his letters. This idea of living a life that is worthy of imitation. Furthermore, this is what he's been driving at all through this passage. Older Christians live a life that is worthy of imitation by the young, by the young people. Titus, teach and live in a way that is worthy of imitation by all those in Crete, especially the elders that you're training up. To one group, he says, set the example. To the other group, he says, follow the example. That is the, the pattern of Christian living that is so prominent in Paul's teaching, yet frankly, I fear, is so often missing in modern Christianity. Biblical scholar and Bible teacher D.A. Carson says that when he was a chemistry undergrad at McGill University, he started an evangelistic Bible study with another student. He says they quickly had more than they bargained for when 16 lost people showed up in their dorm rooms for these Bible studies, began asking questions about John's gospel. He says, I didn't have the answer to those things. Ironically enough, he went on to write a commentary on John, so now he can probably answer those things. But he says, uh, you know, it was just two of us that were Christians. We were hoping to have maybe, maybe one or two lost people. He says, I didn't know what to do. He says, but there's this guy named Dave Ward who was another student on campus. And so he said, when we didn't have questions to ask, we would go and, and send them to him to be straightened out. He says this, quote, Dave Ward had been con converted quite spectacularly as a young man. He was, I suppose, what you might call a rough jewel. He was slapdash in your face with no tact and little polish, but he was aggressively evangelistic, powerful in his apologetics, and winningly bold. He allowed people like me to bring people to him every once in a while so he could answer their questions, get them there, and Dave would sort them out. So it was that one night I brought two from my Bible study down to Dave. He bulldozed his way around the room as he always did. He gave his instant coffee then, turning to the first student and asked, Why have you come? The student replied, well, you know, I think that university is a great time for finding out about different points of view, including different religions. So I've been reading some material on Buddhism. I've got a Hindu friend I want to question. And so I, I want, also want to study some Islam. When this Bible study started, I thought I'd come to know a little bit more about Christianity. That's why I've come. Dave looked at him for a few moments and said, sorry, but I don't have time for you. I beg your pardon, said the student. Look, Dave replied, I'll loan you some books on world religions. I can show you how I understand Christianity to fit into all this and why I think biblical Christianity is true. But you're just playing around. You're a dilettante. You don't really care about these things. You're just goofing off. I'm a graduate student myself, and I don't have time. I do not have the hours at my disposal to engage in endless discussions with people who are just playing around. He turned to the second student. Why did you come? I came from a home that you people would call liberal, he said. We go to the United Church, and we don't believe in things like the literal resurrection of Jesus. I mean, give me a break. The deity of Christ, that's a bit much. But my home is a good home. My parents love my sister and me, and we are really a really close family. We worship God. We do good in the community. What do you think you've got that we don't have? For what seemed like two or three minutes, Dave looked at him. Then he said, watch me. As it happened, the student's name was also Dave. This Dave said, I beg your pardon? Dave Ward repeated what he had just said, then he expounded. Watch me. I've got an extra bed. Move in with me. Be my guest. I'll pay for the food. 
You go to your classes, do whatever you have to do, but watch me. Watch me when I get up. Watch when I interact with people, what I say, what moves me, what I live for, what I want in life. You watch me for the rest of the semester, and then you tell me at the end of it whether or not there's a difference. This Dave did not take up Dave Ward on the offer, literally, but he did begin to watch him and to meet with him, and the Lord drew him. Today, he is serving as a medical missionary. This is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. And Carson goes on to make this comment. You who are older should be looking out for younger people and saying, in effect, watch me. Come, I'll show you how to have family devotions. Come, I'll show you how to do a Bible study. Come on, let me take you through some of the fundamentals of the faith. Come, I'll show you how to pray. Let me show you how to be a Christian husband and father or wife and mother. At a certain point in life, that older mentor should be saying other things such as, let me show you how to die. Watch me. This morning I ask you to ask yourself, who are you watching and who is watching you? True Christianity will be evident in God's people as they are marked by consistency, maturity, self-control, imitation, and finally, faithfulness. Faithfulness. Paul ends his application of the gospel to the slaves who are a large part of the congregations in Crete. He says in verses 9 and 10, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This past week, if uh, you were online in a certain, uh, a certain area of the Christian blogosphere, you know the issue of slavery came up because it was mentioned uh, in a Christian song. And the debate essentially was about godly Christian men in the past who owned slaves. Should, should we read their books? Should we benefit from them? Should we trust them? Should, should pastors quote them? And as important as that conversation is worth having, we have to constantly remind ourselves modern slavery was not ancient slavery. Very two different, two very different things. And his commentary on Titus Brian Chapel reminds us a slave in the Greek world included those in miserable conditions, but it also included those in apprentice or indentured relationships, domestic workers, and some who held high government office. Additionally, at the context of this passage indicates, a slave could be considered a member of the master's household and a member of the religious community with the free men. The scope of responsibilities and positions was vast for slaves in the Greco-Roman world. Yet what was common to all slaves was that in some measure, each was subject to the control of another person. Such control makes it surprising to our minds and distressing to modern sensibilities that the inspired apostles does not directly annul the legitimacy of this control. Nevertheless, Paul gives them instructions on how they are to live. In other words, for Paul at this point, the, the issue is not free or not free slave or not slave instead paul is saying what's most important is how are you going to live as a christian given your life situation as a slave what are you going to do what kind of work will you do what will your attitude be towards your masters are you going to to jip them and be subversive to their directions or are you going to be faithful to them even today if you work for somebody the temptation the big temptation is not to give it everything you've got isn't it uh, the, the big temptation is to make excuses and come up with rationalizing arguments for why it's okay to be a bit lazy at work. Why it's okay to, to, to take some time off when you're supposed to be uh, earning your wage for your manager to do your own thing. Whether it's reading a book or surfing the web or just making a personal phone call. We can think about the lack of rest that we had the night before. We can think about the fact that our boss or our manager is a punk and not worthy of our faithfulness. We can look around and compare ourselves to others who are lazy and not doing their job. But the reality is for the Christian, there is no excuse for a poor work ethic. There's no excuse at all. Because it 
our poor work ethic reflects poorly on Christ himself if we claim his name. Moreover, notice the weight that Paul puts on the lifestyle of the slave in verse 10. He gives them this amazing responsibility toward their masters when he says, Act faithfully so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Think about that for a minute. To the degree that the slave was faithful to his master, the doctrine of God our Savior was adorned like a crown fashioned with one jewel after another. Christianity spread like wildfire through the slave class in the Roman world, but not always to the masters. And here, the one who seems to have all the power is not the one who has the power. In this case, it is the slave who is not only free in his heart because he is free in Christ, but by the way he lives his life, he has the power within him to display the gospel of Christ to his master, to provide a witness and a testimony that may lead him to faith in Christ. Even to one who was tyrannical or harsh, the slave was to be faithful displaying the grace of a God who saves sinners through a man, Jesus Christ, who himself took on the tyranny of all our sins, bearing their weight and shame on the cross as he offered up his life that we might be brought to God, forgiven and free from that sin. This morning, how is the culture shaping you? Are you living more like an American or more like a Christian? If the distinction is unclear in your mind, then I invite you to go back to the foundation of your faith. Go back the doctrine of God who saves through Christ go back to the gospel and soak in its truths. Allow the reality of the grace and the mercy and the love of a, of a holy God towards you, a sinful rebel who deserves judgment. Allow that to rewire your thinking. Let the gospel reshape your heart so that your life will reflect Christ and not culture. Father, this is our prayer this morning. I think this is what Paul is driving at so clearly in this passage. Father, as Christians, we are meant to be distinct from those around us. Father, we are not meant to, to live lives that are unchanged, even as Paul would tell the Corinthians, as he listed sin after sin after sin, he said to them, and some of you were such things. God, may it be said of us that we were such sinners, but now in you, by your grace, we are living lives of godliness that reflect well on Christ. God, may how we live our lives, whether it be at home or at work or with our neighbors, God, may they adorn the doctrine of you, our Savior. May they not give reason for any to have legitimate critique or to revile your word. Father, may the faith that we profess directly and powerfully affect the behavior we display. God, this is our prayer this morning. Change us by your word and your spirit.